0: Movie Law Audio presents Volume 3 of Rip Foster Rides the Gray Planet. Chapter 5. The Small Gray World Rip rejoined his planeteers in the supply room and motioned for them to gather around. I know why the Terra Base sent us the fighting equipment, he announced. They were afraid word of this thorium asteroid would leak out to the consops, and it has A Connie cruiser blasted off from Marsport and headed this way. He watched the faces of his men carefully to see how they would take the news. They merely looked at each other and shrugged. Conflict with Consops was nothing new to them. The freighter that found the asteroid landed at Marsport, didn't it? Koa asked. Getting a nod from Rip, he went on. Then I know what probably happened. The two things spacemen can't do are breathe high vac and keep their mouth shut. Some of the crew blabbed about the asteroid, probably at the space club. That's where they hang out. The Connies hang out there too. Result, we get a Connie cruiser after the asteroid. You hit it, Rip acknowledged. Corporal Santos shrugged. If the Connies try to take the asteroid away, they'll have a real warm time. We have ten racks of rockets, twenty-four to a rack. That's a lot of snapper boats we can pick off if they try to make a landing. The planeteers stopped talking as the voice horn boomed. Get it! We are going to No Wait. Prepare to stay in No Wait indefinitely. Rotation stops in two minutes. Rip realized why the order was given. The Scorpius could not maneuver while in a gravity spin, and O'Brien wanted to be free to take action if necessary. The voice horn came on again. Now get it again! The ship may maneuver suddenly. Prepare for acceleration or deceleration without warning. One minute to no wait. Rip gave quick orders. Get lines around the equipment and prepare to haul it. I'll get landing boats assigned and we can load. Then prepare space packs. Lay out suits and bubbles. We want to be ready the moment we get word. Lines were taken from a locker and secured to the equipment. As the planeteers worked, the ship's spinning slowed and stopped. They were in no wait. Rip grabbed for a hand cord that hung from the wall and hauled himself out into the engine control room. The deputy commander was at his post, waiting tensely for orders. Rip thrust against a bulkhead with one foot and floated to his side. I need two landing boats, sir, he requested. One stays on the asteroid with us. Take numbers five and six. I'll assign a pilot to bring back five to the ship after you've landed. Thank you, sir. Rip would have been surprised at the deputy's quick assent if Commander O'Brien hadn't showed him that spacemen were ready to do anything possible to aid the Planeteers. He went back to the supply room and told Koa which boats were to be used, instructed him to get supplies aboard, and then made his way to Commander O'Brien's office. O'Brien was not in. Rip searched and found him in the astroplot room, watching a scope. Green streaks called blips marked the panel, each one indicated an asteroid. "'All too small,' O'Brien said. "'We've only seen two large ones, and they were too large.' "'Space is certainly full of junk,' Rip commented. "'At least this corner of it is full.' A junior space officer overheard him. "'This is nothing. We're on the edge of the asteroid belt. Closer to the middle, there's so much stuff a ship has to crawl through it.' Rip wandered over to the main control desk. A senior space officer was seated before a simple panel, on which there were only a dozen small levers, a visiphone, and a radar screen. The screen was circular, with numbers around the rim, like those on an Earth clock. In the center of the screen was a tiny circle. The central circle represented the Scorpius. The rest of the screen was the area dead ahead. Rip watched and saw several blips on it that indicated asteroids. They were all small. He watched interested as the cruiser overtook them. Once, according to the screen, the cruiser passed under an asteroid with a clearance of only a few hundred feet. "'You didn't miss that one by much,' Rip told the space officer. "'Don't have to miss it by much,' he retorted. "'A few feet are as good as a mile in space. Our blast might kick them around a little, and maybe there's a little mutual mass attraction, but we don't worry about that.' He pointed to a blip that was just swimming into view, a sharp green point against the screen. We do have to worry about that one. He selected a lever and pulled it toward him. Rip felt sudden weight against his feet. The green point on the screen moved downward below center. The feeling of weight ceased. He knew what had happened, of course. Around the hull of the ship set in evenly spaced lines were a series of blast holes through which steam was fired. The steam was produced instantly by running water through the heat coils of the nuclear engine. By using groups or combinations of steam tubes, The control officer could move the ship in any direction, or send it rolling, spin it end over end, or even whirl it into eccentric patterns. How do you decide which tubes to use? Rip asked. Depends on what's happening. If we were ducking missiles from an enemy, I get orders from the commander. But to duck asteroids, there's not much problem. I go over them by firing the steam tubes along the bottom of the ship. That way you feel acceleration on your feet. If I fired the top tubes, the ship would drop out from under those who were standing. They'd all end up on the ceiling. Ripwash for a while longer, then wandered back to Commander O'Brien. He was getting ambitious. At first, the task of capturing an asteroid and moving it back to Earth had been rather unreal, like some of the problems he had worked out while training on the space platform. Now he was no longer calm about it. He had faith in the Terra Base Planeteer specialists, but they couldn't figure everything out for him. Most of the problems of getting the asteroid back to Earth would have to be solved by Lieutenant Richard Ingalls Peter Foster. A junior officer suddenly spoke up. Sir, I have a reading at 270 degrees, 23 degrees, 8 minutes high. Commander O'Brien jumped up so fast that the action shot him to the ceiling. He kicked down again and leaned over the officer's scope. Rip got there by pulling himself right across the top of the chart table. The green point of light on the scope was bigger than any other he had seen. It's about the right size, O'Brien said. There was excitement in his voice. Correct course. Let's take a look at it. All hands gripped something with which to steady themselves as the cruiser spun swiftly onto the new course. The control officer called. I have it sent it, sir. We'll reach it in about an hour at this speed. Jack it up, O'Brien ordered. Heave some neutrons into it. Double that speed, then decelerate to reach it in 30 minutes. The control officer issued orders to the engine control room, In a moment acceleration plucked at them. O'Brien motioned to Rip. Come on, Foster. Let's see what analysis makes of this rock. Rip followed the commander to the deck below, where the technical analysts were located. His heart was pounding a little faster than usual, and not from acceleration either. He found himself wetting his lips frequently and thought, Get hold of it, boy. You got nothing to worry about but high vacuum. He didn't really believe that. There would be plenty to worry about, like detonating nuclear bombs and trying to figure their blast reaction, like figuring out the course that would take them closest to the sun without pulling them into it, like a thousand things, all of them lined up to him. The chief analyst greeted them. We got the orders to change course, Commander. That gave us the location of the asteroid. We're already working on it. Anything yet? No, sir. We'll have the albedo measurements in a few minutes. It will take longer to figure out the mass. The asteroid's efficiency in deflecting sunlight was its albedo. The efficiency depended on the material of which it was made. The albedo of pure metallic thorium was known. If the asteroid's albedo matched it, then that would be one piece of evidence. In the same way the mass of thorium was known, the measurements of the asteroid were being taken. They would be compared with a chunk of thorium of the same size. If it worked out, that would be evidence enough. Commander O'Brien motioned to chairs. Might as well sit down while we're waiting, Foster. He took one of the chairs and looked closely at Rip. Suddenly he grinned. I thought Planeteers never got nervous. Who's nervous? Rip retorted, then answered his own question truthfully. I am. You're right, sir. The closer we get, the more scared I get. That's a good sign, O'Brien replied. It means you'll be careful. Got any real doubts about the job? Rip thought it over and didn't think so. Not any real ones. I think we can do it, but I'm nervous just the same. Great cosmos, Commander. This is my first assignment, and they give me a whole world to myself and tell me to bring it home? All right, maybe it isn't a very big world, but that doesn't change things much. O'Brien chuckled. I never expected to get an admission like that from a planeteer. Well, I never expected to make one like that to a spaceman, Rip retorted. The chief analyst returned, a sheet of computations in his hand. Report, sir. The albedo measurement is correct. Looks as though this might be the one. How long before we get the measurements and comparisons? Ten minutes, perhaps, sir. Rip spoke up. Sir, there's some data I'll need. What, lieutenant? Lieutenant. The chief analyst pulled a notebook from his pocket. I'll need all possible data on the asteroid's speed, orbit, and physical measurements. I have to figure a new orbit and what it'll take to blast the mass into it. We'll get those. The orbit will not be exact, of course. We only have two reference points, but I think it'll be pretty close. O'Brien nodded. Do what you can, chief, and when Foster gets down to doing his calculations, have your men run them through the electronic computer for him. Rip thanked them both and stood up, Sir. I'm going back to my men. I want to be sure everything is ready if there's a Connie cruiser headed this way, we don't want to lose any time. Good idea, I think we'll dump you on the asteroid, Foster, and then blast off not too far, of course, just enough to lead the Connie away from you if it screens pick us up. That sounded good to Rip. We'll be ready when you are, sir. The chief analyst took less than the estimated ten minutes for his next set of figures. Commander O'Brien called personally while Rip was still searching for the right landing boat ports. The voice horn bellowed. Get it, Lieutenant Foster. The mass measurements are correct. This is your asteroid. Estimated twelve minutes before we reach it. Your data will be ready by the time you get back here. Show exhausts. Rip found Koa and the men and asked the sergeant major for a report. "'We're ready, sir,' Koa told him. "'We can get out in three minutes. "'It will take us that long to get into space gear. "'Your stuff is laid out, sir.' "'Get me the books and charts from the supplies,' Rip directed. "'Have Santos bring them to the chief analyst. "'I'm going back to figure out our course. "'No use doing it the hard way on the asteroid "'where I can do it in a few minutes here with the ship's computer.' he turned and hurried back, hauling himself along by handholds. The ship had stopped acceleration and was at no weight again. As he neared the analysis section, it went into deceleration, but the pressure was not too bad. He made his way against it easily. The chief analyst was waiting for him. We have everything you need, Lieutenant, except the orbital stuff. We'll do the best we can on that and have a good estimate in a few minutes. Meanwhile, you can mark up your figures. Incidentally. What power are you going to use to move the asteroid? Nuclear explosions, Rip said, and saw the chief's eyes pop, he added, with conventional chemical fuel for corrections. He felt rising excitement. The whole ship seemed to have come to life. There was excited tension in the computer room when he went in with the chief. Spacemen, all mathematicians, were waiting for him. As the chief led him to a table, they gathered around him. Rip took command. Here's what we're after. I need to pilot an orbit that will get us out of the asteroid belt without any collisions, take us as close to the sun as possible without having it capture us, and land us in space about 10,000 miles from Earth. From then on, I'll throw the asteroid into a breaking ellipse around the Earth, and I'll be able to make any small corrections necessary. He spread out a solar system chart and marked in the positions of the planets as of that moment using the daily almanac. Then he put down the position of the asteroid, taking it from the paper, the chief analyst handed him. Will you make assignments, chief? The chief shook his head. Make them yourself, lieutenant. your service. Rip felt a little ashamed of some of the unkind things he had said about the spaceman. Thank you, he pointed to a spaceman. Will you calculate the inertia of the asteroid, please? The spaceman hurried off. First thing to do is pilot the orbit as though there were no other bodies in the system. Where's Santos? Rip said. Here, sir. The corporal had come in unnoticed with Rip's reference books. Rip had plotted orbits before, but never one for actual use. His palms were wet as he laid it out, using prepared tables. When he had finished, he pointed to a spaceman. That's it. Will you translate it into analog figures for the computer, please? He assigned to the others the task of figuring out the effect Mercury, the Sun, and Earth would have on the orbit, using an assumed speed for the asteroid. To the chief analyst, he gave the job of putting all the data together in proper form for feeding to the electronic brain. It would have taken all spacemen present about ten days to complete the job by using regular methods, but the electronic computer produced the answer in three minutes. Thanks a million, chief, Rip said. I'll be calling on you again before this is over. He tucked the sheets into his pocket. Anytime, lieutenant. We'll keep rechecking the figures as we go along. If there are any corrections, we'll send them to you. That will give you a check on your own figures. Don't worry, Rip assured him. We'll have plenty of corrections. Deceleration had been dropping steadily. It ceased altogether, leaving them weightless. O'Brien's voice came over the speaker. Get it! crews take stations at posts five and six. The planeters will depart in five minutes. Lieutenant Foster will report to Central Control if he cannot be ready at that time. Santos grinned at Rip. Here we go, Lieutenant. Rip's heart would have dropped into his shoes if there had been any gravity. Only a little excitement showed on his face, though. He waved his thanks at the analysts and grinned back at Santos. Show an exhaust, Corporal. Hivac is waiting. Chapter 6. Rip's Personal Planet Rip rechecked his spacesuit before putting on his helmet. The air seal was intact and his heating and ventilating units worked. He slapped his knee pouches to make sure the space knife was handy to his left hand and the pistol to his right. Koa was already fully dressed. He handed Rip the shoulder case that contained the plotting board. Santos had taken charge of Rip's astrogation instruments. A spaceman was waiting with Rip's bubble. At a nod, the spaceman slipped it on his head. Rip reached up and gave it a quarter turn. The locking mechanism clamped into place. He turned his belt ventilator control on full, and the spacesuit puffed out. When it was fully inflated, he watched the pressure gauges. It was steady. No leaks in suit or helmet. He let the pressure go down to normal. Koa's voice buzzed in his ears. You hear me, sir? Rip turned the volume of his communicator down a little and spoke in a normal voice. I hear you. Am I clear? Yes, sir. All men dressed and ready. Rip made a final check. He counted his men, then personally inspected their suits. The boats were next. They were typical landing craft, shaped like rectangular boxes. There was no need for streamlining in the vacuum of space. They were not pressurized. Only men in spacesuits rode in the ungainly boxes. He checked all blast tubes to make sure they were clear. There were small single tubes on each side of the craft, A clogged one could explode and blow the boat up. Koa, he knew, had checked everything already, but the final responsibility was his. In space, no officer or sergeant took anyone's word for anything that might mean lives. Each checked every detail personally. Rip looked around and saw the planeteers watching him. There was approval on the faces behind the clear helmets, and he knew they were satisfied with his thoroughness. At last, certain that everything was in good order, he said quickly, Pilots, man your boats. Doust got into one and a spaceman into the other. Doust's boat would stay with them on the asteroid. The spaceman would bring the other back to the ship. Commander O'Brien stepped through the valve into the boat lock. A spaceman handed him a hand communicator. He spoke into it. Rip couldn't have heard him through the helmet otherwise. All set, Foster. Ready, sir. Good. The long-range stream picked up a blip a few minutes ago. It's probably that Connie Cruiser. Rip swallowed. The planet cheers froze, waiting for the commander's next words. Our screens are a little better than theirs, so there's a slim chance they haven't picked us up yet. We'll drop you and get out of here. But don't worry. We have your orbit fixed, and we'll find you when the screens are clear. Suppose they find us while you're gone, Rip asked. It's a chance, O'Brien admitted. You'll have to take Spaceman's luck on that one, but we won't be far away. We'll duck behind Vesta or another of the big asteroids and hide so their screens won't pick up our motion. Every now and then we'll sneak out for a look. If the screen seems clear, if those high backed Bermans defy you, get on the landing boat radio and help for help. We'll come blasting. He waved a hand, thumb, and forefinger held together in the ancient symbol for everything right and then ordered
1: Get flaming.
0: He stepped through the valve. Clear the lock, Rip ordered. Open outer valve when ready. He took a quick final look around. The pilots were in the boats. His planeteers were standing by, safety lines attached to the boats and their belts. He moved into position and snapped his own line to a ring on Doust's boat. The spacemen vanished through the valve and the massive door slid closed. The overhead lights flickered out. Rip snapped on his belt light, and the others followed suit. In front of the box-like landing boats, a great door slid open, and air from the lock rushed out. Rip knew it was only imagination, but he felt for a moment as though the bitter cold of space near absolute zero had penetrated his suit. Beyond the lights from their belts, he saw stars and recognized the constellation for which the space cruiser was named. A superstitious spaceman would have taken that as a sign of good luck. Rip admitted that it was nice to see. Float em, he ordered. The Planeteers gripped handholds at the entrance with one hand and launching rails on the boats with the other and heaved. The boat slid into space. As the safety lines tightened, the Planeteers were pulled after the boat. Rip left his feet with a little spring and shot through the door. Directly below him, the asteroid gleamed darkly in the light of the tiny sun. His first reaction was, great cosmos, what a little chunk of rock. But that was because he was used to looking from the big space platform of the great curved Terra, or at the big ball of the moon. Actually, the asteroid was fair-sized when compared with most of its kind. The planeteers hauled themselves into the boats by their safety lines. Rip waited until all were in, and then pulled himself along his own line to the black square of the door. Coe was waiting to give him a hand into the craft. The planeteers were standing, except for Doust Rip had never seen an old-type railroad, or he might have likened the landing boat to a railroad boxcar. It was about the same size and shape, but it had huge windows on both sides and in front of the pilot, windows that were not enclosed. The space-suited men needed no protection. Blast! Rip ordered. A pulse of fire spurted from the top of each boat, driving them bottom-first toward the asteroid. Land at will, Rip said. The asteroid loomed large as he looked through an opening. It was rocky, but there were plenty of smooth places. Doust picked one. He was an expert pilot, and Rip watched him with pleasure. The exhaust from the top lessened, and fire spurted soundlessly from the bottom. Doust balanced the opposite thrusts of the top and bottom blasts with the delicacy of a man threading a needle. In a few moments, the boat was hovering a foot above the asteroid. Dowse cut the exhausts, and Rip stepped out onto the tiny planet. The Planeteers knew what to do. Corporal Peterson produced hardened steel spikes with ring tops. Private Trudeau had a sledge. Driving the first spike would be the hardest because the action of swinging the hammer would propel the Planeteer like a rocket exhaust. In space, the law that every action has an equal and opposite reaction had to be remembered at every moment. Rip watched, interested in how his men would tackle the problem. He didn't know the answer himself because he had never driven a spike on an airless, almost gravityless world, and no one had ever mentioned it to him. Peterson searched the gray metal with his torch and found a slender spur of thorium, perhaps two feet high, a short distance from the boat. "'Here's a hold," he said. "'Come on, Frenchy. You too, Bradshaw.' Trudeau, carrying the sledge, walked up to the spur of rock and stood with his heels against it. Peterson sat down on the ground with the spur between his legs. He stretched, hooking his heels around Trudeau's ankles, anchoring him. With his gloves, he grabbed the seat of the Frenchman's spacesuit. Bradshaw took a spike and held it against the gray metal ground. The Frenchman swung, his hammer noiseless as it drove the tough spike in. A few inches into the metal was enough. Bradshaw took a wrench from his belt and put it on the head of the spike and turned it. Below the surface, teeth on the spike bit into the metal. It would hold. The rest was easy. The spike was used to anchor Trudeau while he drove another at his longest reach. Then the second spike became his anchor and so on until enough spikes had been set to lace the boat down against any sudden shock. The boat piloted by the spaceman was tied to the one that would remain and the Planeteers floated its supplies through a window. It took only a few moments, with Planeteers forming a chain from inside the boat to a spot a little distance away. Even the heaviest crates weighed almost nothing. They passed them from one to another like balloons. All clear, sir, Koa called. Rip stepped inside and made a quick inspection. The box was empty, except for the spaceman pilot. He put a hand on the pilot's shoulder. On your way, Rocky. Thanks.
1: You're welcome, sir,
0: the pilot added. Watch out for a highback. Rip and Koa stepped out and walked a little distance away. Santos and Peterson cast the landing boat adrift and shoved it away from the anchored boat. In a moment, fire spurted from the bottom tube, spread over the dull metal, and licked at the feet of the Planeteers. Rip watched the boat rise upward to the great, sleek, dark bulk of the Scorpius. The landing boat maneuvered into the airlock with brief flares from its exhaust. In a few moments, the sparkling blast of auxiliary rocket tubes moved the spaceship away. O'Brien was putting a little distance between his ship and the asteroid before turning on the nuclear drive. The ship decreased in size until Rip saw it only as a dark oval silhouette against the Milky Way. Then the exhaust of the nuclear drive grew into a mighty column of glowing blue and the ship flamed into space. For a moment, Rip had a wild impulse to yell for the ship to come back. He had been in vacuum before, but only as a cadet, with an officer in charge. Now suddenly, he was the one responsible. The job was his. He stiffened. Planeteer officers didn't worry about things like that. He forced his mind to the job at hand. The next step was to establish a base. The base would have to be on the dark side of the asteroid once it was in its new orbit. That meant a temporary base now, and a better one later, when they had blasted the little planet into its new orbit. He estimated roughly the approximate positions where he would place his charges, using the sun and the star Canopus as visual guides. This will do as a temporary base, he announced. Rig the boat compartment. While two of you are doing that, the rest break out the rocket launchers and the rocket racks and assemble the cutting torch. Cole will make assignments. While the sergeant major translated Rip's general instructions into specific orders for each man, the young lieutenant walked to the edge of the sun belt. There was no atmosphere, so the edge was a sharp line between dark and light. There wasn't much light either. They were too far from the sun for that. But as they neared the sun, the darkness would be their protection. They would get so close to Sol that the metal on the sun side would get soft as butter. He bent close to the uneven surface. It was clean metal, not oxidized at all. The thorium had never been exposed to oxygen. Here and there, pyramids of metal thrust up through the asteroid, sometimes singly, sometimes in clusters. They were metal-crystal formations. He guessed that once, long ago, the asteroid had been part of something much bigger, perhaps a planet. One theory said that asteroids were formed when a planet exploded. This asteroid might have been a pocket of pure thorium inside the planet. There would be plenty to do in a short while, but meanwhile, he enjoyed the sensation of being on a tiny world in space, with only a handful of planeteers for company. He smiled. King Foster, he said to himself, monarch of a Thorian space speck. It was a rather nice feeling, even though he laughed at himself for thinking it. Since he was in command of the detachment, he could in all truth say this was his own personal planet. It would be a good bit of humor to spring on the folks back on Terra. Yep, I was boss of a whole world once, made myself king, emperor of all the metal molecules and king of the thorium spurs, and my subjects obeyed my every command. Thanks to planeteer discipline, the attachment commander is boss. He reminded himself that he'd better stop gathering space dust and start acting like a detachment commander. He walked back to the landing boat, stepping with care, with such low gravity, a false step could send him high above the asteroid. Of course, that would not be dangerous, since the spacesuits were equipped with six small compressed air bottles for emergency propulsion, but it would be embarrassing. Inside the boat, Doust and Nunez were setting up the compartment. Sections of the rear wall swung out and locked into place against airtight seals, forming a box at the rear end of the boat. Equipment sealed in the stern, Next to the rocket tube supplied light, heat, and air. It was a simple but necessary arrangement. Without it, the planeteers could not have eaten. There was no airlock for the compartment. The half of the detachment not on duty would walk in, seal it up, turn on the equipment, and wait until the gauges registered sufficient air and heat, then remove their spacesuits. When it was time to leave again, they would don suits, open the door, and walk out, and the next shift would enter and repeat the process. Earlier models had permanent compartments, but they took up too much room and craft designed for carrying as many men and as much equipment as possible. They were strictly workboats, and hard experience had showed the best design. The rocket launcher was already set up near the boat. It was a simple affair with four adjustable legs bolted to ground spikes. The legs held a movable cradle in which the rocket racks were placed. High-geared hand controls enabled the gunner to swing the cradle at high speed in any direction except straight down. A simple illuminated optical sight was all the gunner needed. Since there was no gravity and no atmosphere in space, the missiles flashed out in a straight line, continuing on into infinity if they missed their targets. Proximity fuses made this a remote possibility. If the rocket got anywhere near the target, the shell would explode. Rip found his astrogation instruments, set carefully to one side. He took the data sheets from his case and examined them. Next came the work of finding the exact spots in which to place his atomic charges. Since the computer aboard ship had done all the mathematics necessary, he needed only to take sights to determine the precise positions. He took a transit-like instrument from the case, pulled out the legs of its self-contained tripod, and then carried it to a spot near where he estimated the first charge would be placed. The instrument was equipped with three movable rings, to be set for the celestial equator, for the zero meridian, and for the right ascension of any convenient star. Using a regular level would have been much simpler. The instrument had one, but with so little gravity to activate it, the thing was useless. The sights were specially designed for use in space, and his bubble was no obstacle to taking observations. He merely put the clear plastic against the curved sight and looked into it much as he would have looked through a telescope on Earth. As he did so... A hint of pale pink light caught the corner of his eye. He backed away from the instrument and turned his head quickly, looking at the colorimeter-type radiation detector on the side of his helmet. It was glowing. An icy chill sent a shiver through him. Great galaxies! He'd forgotten! Had Koa and the others? He turned so fast he lost balance and floated above the surface like a captive balloon. Santos, who had been standing nearby to help if requested, hooked a toe on the ground spike, caught him, and set him upright on the ground again. Get me the radiation detection instruments, he ordered. Koa sensed the urgency in his voice, and got the instruments himself. Rip switched them on and read the illuminated dial on the alpha counter. Plenty high, as was natural, but no danger there. Alpha particles couldn't penetrate the spacesuits. Then, his hand clammy inside the space glove, he switched on the other meter, The gamma count was far below the alpha, but there were too many of the rays around him for comfort. Inside the helmet, his face turned pale. There was no immediate danger. It would take many days to build up a dose of gamma that could hurt them. But gamma was not the only radiation. They were in space, fully exposed to equally dangerous cosmic radiation. The planeteers had gathered while he read the instruments. Now they were watching him. They knew the significance of what he had found. I ought to be busted to recruit, he told them. I knew this asteroid was thorium, and that thorium is radioactive. If I'd used my head, I would have added nuclide shielding to the list of supplies the Scorpius provided. We could have had enough of it to protect us while around our base, even if we couldn't be protected while working on the charges. That would have at least have kept our dosage down enough for safety. No one else told him it either, sir, Cole reminded him. It was my job to think of it, and I didn't. So I've put us in a time squeeze. If the Scorpius gets back soon, we can get our shielding before the dosage has built up very high. If the ship doesn't come back, that dosage is going to mount. He looked at them grimly. It won't kill us, and it won't even make us very sick. I'll have the ship take us off before we build up that much dosage. Santos started. But sir, that means... I know what it means, Rip stated bitterly. It means the ship has got to return in time to give us some nuclide shielding or we'll be the laughing stock of the special order squadrons. The detachment that started a job that the spacemen had to finish.